Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey, what's going on, guys? So this weekend, I caught up with a friend. His name is Mike Flynn. He's a coastal advocate for the North Carolina Coastal Federation. We had a pretty timely conversation about issues facing the North Carolina coast, some upcoming elections. Um, so although this is a bit of a more of a local episode, Mike also chats about issues that affect all of us, including Trump opening up more permits to drill in the Atlantic and also in Alaska. So just a heads up, we recorded this outside. It was a beautiful day, but it also was bike week in the Outer Banks. So you'll hear some uh, motorcycle and some car traffic in the background. Also, something happened in the first kind of minute or two of introduction. I uh, didn't record, but you'll hear Mike going into talking about the initiatives that the North Carolina Coastal Federal Federation has. Um, anyways, I hope you enjoy. The preservation and improvement of coastal water quality is the main umbrella. And all of our other goals will fall underneath um, you know, protection of water quality, including the advancement of the oyster restoration efforts, uh, oyster mariculture, we see that as a kind of a win-win-win, improving the water quality, providing habitat, and also supporting a strong coastal economy as well. Um, additionally, we're working on advancing uh, construction of living shorelines, using those as more of kind of environmentally friendly technique. Um, we're looking at kind of effective coastal management, uh, looking at policies, regulation, and one of the other things some of our educators will work on and um, other coastal specialists will work on kind of reducing marine debris, uh, yeah. both coastal level and what's coming from further offshore. Yeah. Yeah. With the, for the oysters, you're the one who got me in touch with uh, Catherine McDade, mm. who I did uh, some oyster farming with about a year ago. Yeah. That was yeah slash Creek. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was, um, yeah. I mean, still to this day, probably the best oysters I've ever yeah. had. Um, well, cool. Well, so, so you've been with them for, or with the um, Coastal Federation for about a little bit over a year, almost two at this point? Yeah, uh, September of this year will be two. Nice, awesome. Um, so in what capacity are you, uh, do you work with them? So the Federation's kind of set up um, with three pillars here. Uh, initially, they were an advocacy organization dealing with the proposal uh, to move forward with peat mining on the mainland here. So they kind of got concerned about the implications that peat mining would have. Off the coast, yeah. Uh, that was on the mainland there. That looked at an area that had a lot of peat, and they use it as an energy source and oh, okay. fertilizer. And they saw some um, degradation of water quality that would result in that. Oh, so that okay. was kind of how the organization got started. Uh, so advocacy had really been kind of the introduction of the federation, but we also work on education, just general education from young students to the general public, and then restoration. So restoration, education, and advocacy are yeah. the three main pillars of the Federation and I serve as the coastal advocate so just trying when there's um, issues that would address or either threaten or um, degrade what coastal water quality is providing that information out to the public and see how they can get engaged and take action yeah man. that would be my primary responsibility this um, the outbacks in particular which is where we are right now but North Carolina is and they should be very protective of their coast anywhere from you know here to Raleigh mm -hmm. people are very uh, seem very aware of what's happening. Uh, but even on top of that, there's still, like you were just talking, we are talking before this, there's um, 
things change so rapidly, especially mm-hmm. with this new administration. Um, so there's always like a new fire to put out or, or something new to, um, you know, new initiative to work with. Mm-hmm. What kind of stuff are you personally doing right now? Yeah, we try to be proactive as possible, and that's where the kind of the education role comes in is stressing the importance of preservation of coastal water quality and, and ha- natural habitats. Um, but in my role as an advocate, I'm very responsive as well. And so one of the things that had kind of come to the forefront was that the Trump administration had issued an executive order in 2017 to supersede the existing five-year program uh, that the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management develops to offer oil and gas lease sales in our federal waters. So he's kind of resetting it. Resetting the clock there, yeah. We're currently working under the 2017 to 2022 program. And when that uh, executive order came out, we wanted to develop a program that would operate under years 2019 to 2024. And he's, in addition to resetting, he's like greatly expanded. Very much so, uh, yeah. yeah. So currently we're seeing lease sales being offered in the central and western part of the Gulf, and there's one scheduled for Cook Inlet uh, in Alaska. Uh, when the draft proposed program came out in January 2018, it offered more than 90% of our national waters uh, to oil and gas lease sales. And they're divided in planning areas, and so we had seen the North, Mid, South Atlantic, um, the Straits of Florida, all of the, the Gulf except for the Eastern um, Gulf, which is in a moratorium until 2022, the entire West Coast, and then all of Alaska as well. And we had gone from 11 lease sales under the current program, 10 of those being in the Gulf, one being in Cook Inlet in Alaska, to I think about 47 lease sales would be proposed under that draft proposed program. And to be clear, you guys were advocating against the 11. The 11 was? Um, Primarily for the Coastal Federation, we respond to mostly state level um, issues. So we would hope to see you know, responsible policies and practices in the Gulf to prevent a uh, future um, yeah. catastrophic spill that occurred in the Deepwater Horizon spill. But primarily what was of concern was that the Atlantic Outer Continental Shelf was being included in this plan. And so we saw that as a, a direct threat to yeah. improving and preserving coastal water qualities in North Carolina waters. Is it being included in this one. Currently, yes. Yeah. So that draft proposed program was released in January of 2018, and that initiated a 60-day public comment period, which closed in March. Um, thereafter, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management is going to review all of those comments and then develop a proposed program. Once that is released, that will initiate a 90-day comment period. And again, the agency would go through and review all of those comments that would be um, provided thereafter, and then they would um, develop a final program. Once that is released, that initiates a 60-day comment period, but only the President and Congress have the opportunity to comment thereafter. And then once that uh, 60-day comment period closes, it would be published in the Federal Register and become law. Okay, so there's still time to... Yes, and so right now, this you know, currently this is a very timely issue. We had been anticipating the release of the proposed program sometime January of 2019 and so we're four months now of waiting 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 we keep telling everybody to say hey we think it's gonna happen now we think right. it's gonna happen now um, you know it's getting a little uh, chicken little at this point yeah, yeah. there had been a few things that had come about Secretary Zinke resigned in December um, the Deputy Secretary David Bernhardt became the acting secretary for a period of time he went through confirmation hearings and was confirmed just two weeks ago 
Um, and so he is now the Secretary of Interior. And then just on Thursday afternoon, uh, there was an interview um, with Secretary Bernhardt in the Wall Street Journal, and he said that the proposed program was going to be postponed, the release of the proposed program was going to be postponed indefinitely because in March there was a decision from a federal judge in Alaska to uphold a drilling I ban saw that, yeah. um, for all the waters in the Arctic off of Alaska and then specific canyons um, in the primarily the North Atlantic but also some sections in the Mid-Atlantic would come as far south as uh, the Norfolk Canyon. Nice. And so the the response was that Bernhardt said that the agency wanted to they were planning to appeal that decision and so they didn't want to offer lease sales while this litigation was going on. Yeah. But then we also just heard that um, and they thought they were thinking about waiting until the results of the 2020 election before they would move forward on this process. But we'd also heard that um, the Department of Interior and Bureau of Ocean Energy Management rescheduled an open house that was originally scheduled for Kill the Hills on May 14th to July 22nd. So we don't know if that was just done as a response, if they're delayed in the process of coming out with the plan. But we're kind of sitting here today of we don't know when it could, it could come out after the 2020 election or right. maybe it could come out in June or Yikes. July. Yeah, so. That's the one thing, like you mentioned, hey, January, you were supposed to get some information. Mm -hmm. That's the one thing about the Trump administration in their race to seemingly destroy the environment, they're tripping over themselves. They're not as you know well managed as they could be. Yeah, it's good, but it's also like it makes it very point. difficult to prepare. Yeah, that's so. Yeah, there's a few other items that would be of concern um, to the Coastal Federation. They had also proposed to revise the definition of the waters of the United States. Mm. Um, a lot of it would have to really affect more of the western areas because it was going to reduce uh, considerations for what is defined as the waters of the United States for areas that um, are, are not flowing river bodies um, continuously. I'm blanking on the word right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, like still water. Or yeah, a lot of areas out west where they're dry, you know, nine months out of the year and then in the springtime where they get um, heavy rains, you'll see these streams form. Trying to reduce that definition. Yeah, as also reason. wetlands would be removed from that definition as well. Um, Pocosins in our, our western here. They're trying to reduce the, the overreach and regulatory burdens from the federal administration and felt that the state has better control. But in North Carolina, it's somewhat concerning because the state has defaulted to the federal definition. Yeah. So states usually have the opportunity to enforce more stricter regulations yeah. than what the federal federal regulation is, but in this case, North Carolina defaults to the federal regulation. So. Do you think we're in a good spot now with Governor Cooper? We have seen kind of a lot of... Um, he's, he's pretty against yeah, drilling... Initiatives, uh, yeah, yeah, towards environmental protection. And I came to the state in 2017, but had been in here uh, in North Carolina from 2013 to 2015 while at school right. at East Carolina. So I did see some of the work from the McCrory administration. But yeah, we'd seen as far as offshore oil and gas goes, um, in North Carolina and most of the governors along the East Coast have taken a stance of opposition. So we're really grateful for their leadership on this issue. But does that mean that drilling could still happen? Like how, what is their jurisdiction? Could drilling still happen in the Gulf Coast? I mean, y yeah, I mean, um, Bone is required to take in consideration what the state 
is proposed right now. One thing we had heard early on that got kind of a lot of somewhat misinformation, but when Zinke had granted Florida um, an exemption from drilling because um, Governor, I can't think of his name right now, from Florida, Rick Scott, um, you know, had said that they don't want drilling off the coast, it's too, too much of a threat to their existing tourism industry, and Zinke had made, uh, you know, declared an exemption for him, but we had learned legally there was no, um, no legs underneath that statement. Um, that it could still be included in the plan if Bohm felt it was a federal initiative. So there's a lot of, everybody said, hey, we want the same exemption that you granted to Florida, and we learned from a legal standpoint right, that right. It, you know, it was nothing more than a comment. Wow. Um, wow. And so all of this, the statements and resolutions that have been passed are very telling, yeah. um, and they should be considered by the, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management as they develop this next proposed program, um, but they could still be included, despite the fact that the, the state governors have voiced opposition. So for this effort in particular, mm-hmm. it, whether you're drilling in the, to the Gulf Coast, off the coast of whatever state on the eastern seaboard you're on, mm-hmm. or um, Alaska, those could be some pretty big implications. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what can people do to help? either nationally or locally in in North Carolina? Yeah, it depends on the timing. So last year, one of the big pushes we were asking people to do is submit public comment, and we had learned, um, a gentleman we work with, the Federation participates in this Don't Drill and Sea Coalition. It's about a dozen or so environmental organizations. You can learn more visiting don'tdrillandsea.org. And we have been advocating that people um, submit public comments when these periods are open, so... We did so um, last year in the spring from January to March, and then once the release of the proposed program comes out, uh, that will initiate a 90-day public comment period. And we had been advised from um, the acting director of the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, Dr. Walter Cruikshank, that it really, Bohm will really be evaluating more of the quality of these comments rather than the quantity. So if we have 2 million comments that just say, don't drill, and, and again, to 2 million comments that say drill, what they're really going to look for is quality comments, thinking about like yeah, yeah how how this industry would impact you know the the industry people are already involved with here the tourism or commercial fishing or recreational fishing so right. really providing examples of how this industry would impact is very important so to take some time and draft a well thought out comment wow. before submitting it would be. Uh, really advised. Yeah, it's good to know it's not just quality or mm-hmm. quality. Yeah. Do you, do you have an indication for just the pulse of like a percentage of people who are pro and con? Or? Yeah, we had, you can go on regulations.gov and look at the comments in there and we had seen a lot more opposed yeah. um, than in favor. And then one of the other um, steps that people take action now is we do have some legislation that was introduced in North Carolina, the Protect the Military Tourism and Fisheries, uh, was introduced by Representative Deb Butler and Senator Harbor Peterson recently. Uh, both of those bills are going to be considered in the General Assembly, and they would prevent the construction of any infrastructure within state waters and along the state coast to support the oil and gas industry. The Coastal Resources Commission had just met um, April 17th and 18th, and they adopted a resolution opposing any offshore exploration for oil and gas as well as production. Oh, okay. And so from 
public standpoint, what they could do is contact their representatives in both the, the House and Senate and ask them to support the, those bills um, that were introduced to the General Assembly. That would be um, you know, strongly encouraged if they wanted to take a stance of opposition. And then at the federal level, we're in somewhat of a unique position here along the Outer Banks is that um, Congressman Walter Jones passed away this year and he had been an advocate opposing offshore oil and gas industry and he passed away and now there's going to be a special election. Actually, it will be held on April 30th. Um, so there are a lot of candidates, um, you know, just two that I'm aware of that have taken public stances of opposition. Um, it would be Richard Bue. And Dana Outlaw, Richard Bue is a retired Marine, and Dana Outlaw is the current mayor of New Bern. And, and looking at over all of their candidate um, campaign pages, they were the only two who I had seen actually post anything about opposing wow. offshore oil and gas. So, awesome. do you have the, the ability yet yeah, to to vote someone who would oppose offshore oil and gas exploration and development? And those would be the two candidates. Um, nice. We had seen, yeah, actually taking a similar stance. And we also have some, some federal legislation that was introduced. Um, Representative Donald McEachin in Virginia had introduced the Defend Our Coast Act. He also introduced it uh, last year, and that would, that would remove the Mid-Atlantic from uh, future considerations mm -hmm. in any offshore oil and gas uh, leasing programs. The whole Mid-Atlantic. So the whole Mid-Atlantic, yeah. Yep. yeah. And Walter Jones had been a co-sponsor of that bill. And we've seen some other similar legislation. Uh, Frank Pallone, representative from New Jersey, had introduced the um, Coast Anti-Drilling Act and that sought to remove all the Atlantic planning areas wow, for future okay. consideration. And then uh, Representative Joe Cunningham from South Carolina introduced the Coast and Marine Economies Protection Act. Uh, he had introduced another bill previously, the Coastal Economies Protection Act, and that just sought to remove um, the planning areas for the next 10 years, and then he actually introduced uh, the bill that would do it in perpetuity here. So that would really, I learned in the Outer Banks, they had been going through this um, song and dance since the 80s of yeah. if it's included, it's deemed too environmentally sensitive, is removed. And so supporting that legislation at the federal level and removing these areas entirely from future considerations, I think is our most effective. Yeah. Um, I mean, that seems here. to be the public trend. That seems to be the trend of thought with the public, but also with you know, the local area. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering who is, like, really, other than the Trump administration, who is really pushing to drill in this area? Actually, uh, during the development of the 2017 to 2022 program, when um, President Barack Obama was in office, the Mid-Atlantic and portions of the South Atlantic were included in that draft proposed program mm -hmm. uh, at that time. So they had been included previously, and then... Um, you know, a lot of people came out. Boehm held an open house here in the Outer Banks, and the same thing was going to happen this this round. And they, I think they had about 500, 600 people come out to rally against it. Yeah. Um, as they reviewed kind of more of the environmental impacts, they deemed that it was too environmentally sensitive, yeah. and so it was ultimately removed uh, from this current program we're operating in. So it, it had been considered recently. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's kind of something that's like you said, it's always been on the table, mm -hmm. uh, but people have been resilient enough to stop it at least to, Correct. Kind, of take, uh, to kind of take it off the table interesting yeah it, you know it seems like that's something that most people can get behind whether you're a conservationist or you're, you, know, you rely on the ocean for mm -hmm. lightly to um, 
Cool. So what other, uh, you know, you work on a few different initiatives. What else are you working on? Yeah, the one thing I really enjoyed working at the Federation so far is it just hasn't been environmental protection. It's also kind of trying to look at our economy uh, holistically and looking at the dollars that are generated from both tourism but also our um, fishing industry and more recently we've been looking at the development of our shellfish mariculture industry yeah primarily oysters uh, in North Carolina seeing a lot of development in Virginia um, and in Maryland as well too we had seen kind of the decline of blue crab population lead to yeah. uh, shifting gears um, towards mariculture industries there have been some grant programs that had provided opportunities for, for crabbers that they wanted to start up uh, shellfish mariculture oh, industries cool. they would do in some, Maryland? yeah they would do some low interest loan programs for them so they could get started nice. um, kind of supplement their income nice. and so you'd seen the advance of the oyster industry uh, to the north of us for about a decade or so and when you compare the acreage of waters where this could be done to North Carolina we see that there's huge gains yeah and we're kind of defining um, North Carolina has the potential to become the Napa, Napa Valley, Valley. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm waiting for that to happen I'd be excited for that yeah but yeah it's crazy like I've done a few I've interviewed people who have oyster farms I've done volunteered a little bit mm -hmm. and it does it changes the, the taste of the oyster changes mm -hmm. within a couple hundred yards you yeah kind of drive down and have 40 different oysters and, you know 30 miles. Yeah. It is wild. Yeah, and we're starting to see um, the restaurant industry get behind it, even the local craft brew and, and wineries get behind it yeah. as well. I see it's a very nice complimentary piece. Um, people could go on these oyster trail tours and, yeah. and you said sample you know, a few oysters that are grown here, match it with a beer or a wine yeah. that are grown regionally or produced regionally and, and travel along the whole 300 mile coast here. Yeah. yeah. There's so much potential. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like you were saying, like we, it's not being harnessed as much here. Like I, a friend of mine lives and works in a restaurant in Charleston, mm -hmm. and a lot of his oysters come from Virginia. Right. He's completely skipping anything south of Virginia line. Yeah. North Carolina's got tons of opportunity mm -hmm. to create sustainable seafood. That's actually like the only version of farming that's good, actively good for the for the environment. Yeah. You know, delicious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's been uh, some hurdles uh, that I yeah. think are being overcome now. There's been the, the Federation has been developing these blueprints. Um, again, uh, five-year programs, I think they have done, the first one came out in 2008, so they're on their, their third edition now. Okay. Um, kind of collaborating with academia, uh, state government, and other nonprofits in the area who are trying to advance um, more um, oyster farming efforts throughout the yeah. state. And they do so, do so in three different ways through the construction of sanctuaries. So they have the Senator Gene Preston uh, Sanctuary is a large site where they'll bring loose uh, oyster shell and sometimes marl, which is like a limestone uh, type of rock, and, and develop these sanctuary sites. Where's that? Where's that one? Uh, in the Pamlico Sound. Okay, cool. Yep. A uh, little closer to the central part of the coast okay. there, but that'll act as kind of a breeding ground. Yeah, um, sure. So you can't harvest the oysters that are grown in these sanctuaries, but you can do hook and line fishing over them. So they have become popular recreational fishing spots because they provide such great uh, habitat yeah. in the area, uh, great fishing grounds. And then they'll do uh, cult planting. So you think of the sanctuary sites as kind of the mothership. And then we'll have these cult planting sites uh, nearby in areas where yeah. 
So we'll have our sanctuary sites, which act as like the mothership. There's no harvest on it, um, but they would um, produce seed. And then we'll have culture planting sites around it in strategic locations where the currents would provide some of that seed and distribute it over these areas where they, they bring out shell and marl. And as the um, larvae passes over these culture planting sites, eventually, hopefully, they'll settle and become small juvenile spat. And those areas you can harvest uh, wild oysters off of those sites. So those are kind of the two main initiatives. They have sanctuaries and then culture planting sites. Oh wow! Okay, so sanctuaries are obviously sanctuaries, but culture planting mm-hmm. you can actually you can actually harvest. Yep, that's great. Yeah, so we have two. We have a wild harvest, and then the farm-raised oysters here. And so a lot of times the wild harvest you'll see more is kind of the the, um, the clusters that they would use for oyster roast things like that. Whereas the, the farm-raised oysters are more for the half-shell market. Yeah, uh, yeah. you go and get a you know half dozen raw oysters and see it grown more for a, a prettier shell. I was say they're handsome shells. Yeah. <laughs> they really are. Um, well, yeah, mm-hmm. that's great. I mean, that's that's a, a really cool trend, and like you said, the way it's coupled with craft breweries or, or um, you know, branding itself as the Napa Valley of North Carolina, mm-hmm. uh, excuse me, the Napa Valley of you know, for oysters. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a genius way of going about it. Um, so, yeah. So, with you, in what capacity are you? Uh, so one thing we're paying attention to is trying to overcome some of the legislative hurdles uh, that may make it a little more maybe cost prohibitive um, for someone to enter into the industry. Right now there had been a limit on the acreage that somebody can lease. So they could lease up to uh, 10 acres for a total of five sites, so they could lease up to 50 acres. And on somebody who is um, interested in maybe in growing not for the half-shell market, but the shucking market, uh, they might want to to lease a larger amount of acres, make it a little more cost effective for somebody to be working these these areas. Yeah. Um, but there is concern from the public side. We don't we want to see um, you know appropriate siting that is going to reduce any users' conflict. So if this area is you know heavily traveled by people using personal watercrafts, we don't want to see any accidents on the water here if they might right, run over right. some cages. And yeah. then also viewshed concerns for people who bought uh, purchased yeah a. Uh, waterfront home and they don't want to see oyster cages out there you know some people may view that favorably as seeing you know, this delicious and yeah. oyster that's grown right in my backyard but others might not so so they're working to develop these shellfish enterprise areas in north carolina which will take into a variety of considerations of habitat that would be suitable to, um, for these operations but also you know taking consideration some existing user conflict areas and they would go in and site these areas so right now, um, somebody who's interested in starting up a oyster farm just kind of goes out and identifies a site, and then they would, we would work with the Division of Marine Fisheries to say, hey, I want to um, lease this area, and they would go out and do a survey. Is that um, how it works? The person can just go out and say, I want to... Say, this is the area that I'm looking for. Yeah, it's in public trust waters. And then to, the Division of Marine Fisheries would go out and do a survey. Wow. Um, and then eventually they would offer the lease to them. Things they look for, they don't want to see a lot of like submerged aquatic vegetation. Basically, they want to look at kind of barren, barren, sandy bottom right now. Um, so they don't want to see an area that's kind of used heavily um, that's naturally. Issue, yeah. Um, but once they do approve that site, then the, that owner has the ability to go out and farm oysters. And so moving forward with the shellfish enterprise areas would kind of help to scope things out initially and uh, potentially avoid conflict in the beginning here. And so there's a bill being introduced by Representative Pat McElrath, um, 
from Craven County, and I think we're going to see that get approved uh, this year in the General Assembly. Last year, Senator Bill Cook had introduced a, another bill, but there are some concerns about the lease acre size and the uh, state requirement, so somebody from out of state could have potentially um, leased areas in state public trust okay, waters, so that was someone of concern. They didn't want to see a larger seafood industry from elsewhere come in and profit from state property. So so this bill essentially is making it easier for using the friction for someone to? Correct. Yeah, a little more streamline the path, help with siting, um, change some of the acreage requirements. Nice. Yeah. And I think we'll also, one of the things where, um, you know, you're, you said you were in Charleston and you're getting um, oysters yeah, from Virginia. Yeah. Well, the logistics and transportation side are a little easier for growers in Virginia to get trucks right on 95 and bring them down to Charleston, where here in North Carolina, our waters are you know, two to three hours east of 95. Right. So you're going to have to truck them up to that corridor. So the transportation logistics are one thing that's kind of being evaluated. Huh, interesting mm-hmm. point, yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, as much as I love North Carolina, it does. As the crow flies, something looks really close, but it's yeah, it's not. As you know, it's you know, five hours away. <laughs> yeah. um, well, nice, awesome. Yeah, I mean, anything about oysters, I'm all ears. Um, so we talked earlier about uh, like a third initiative mm-hmm. that you personally are working on. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, those are living shorelines, and they kind of go hand in hand with some of the oyster restoration work. Um, living shorelines, I would say, are. A newer technique that marine contractors are using, but as far as um, the concept has been around for at least over a decade or so, um, you, you would see pilot projects and the difference between living shoreline, we're comparing bulkheads to living shorelines pretty much, so those are our shoreline stabilization strategies. So like um, concrete and stone versus... Yeah, using non-natural type of kind of heavy infrastructure projects to stabilize shorelines, primarily on the, the bay side or sound side here rather than the ocean front. Yeah. Um, but you know, for the most part, the installation of a bulkhead had pretty much been the, the main mechanism for stabilizing the shoreline on, on the sound side here. And we're finding that bulkheads are, are somewhat damaging to the the estuarine environment because we'll see the wave energy reflect off the bulkhead downward and start to scour it out. It'll remove some of the submerged aquatic vegetation that may have been there providing habitat for juvenile species. Um, and also their resistance to storms over time, you're seeing the wave energy just pound and pound and pound. It's like how long can you really stand up to that? You know, if you're somebody trying to hold back the floodgates, you can only do that for so long and eventually they would fail. The other kind of somewhat damaging consequence of constructing a bulkhead is really your neighbor. Uh, if you construct a bulkhead, it kind of forces your neighbor to do so as well because you'll see the rate of erosion increase around the sides of a bulkhead. So uh, wow, okay. really just kind of exacerbates the if you, Yeah, I mean, if you talk about like looking, like being an eyesore, those bulkheads, mm-hmm. at least the old school ones, totally are. Yeah. So so instead, you guys are actually using... So people... Yeah. Um, a lot of work... Act- Academia uh, has evaluated different designs and they found that you can dissipate the wave energy if you construct something like they call it as a marsh sill or marsh tow revetment where the wave will actually dissipate the wave energy and break before uh, it expends all of its energy onto the shoreline. And they use different designs. Some do use rock or wooden sills or in this case uh, bagged oyster shells 
in our areas where we do see higher oyster larvae populations, eventually that wild larvae will settle on these bagged oyster shells and form an oyster reef. And that had traditionally been kind of our first line of defense had been these oyster reefs um, along estuarine shorelines here, provide gotcha. a lot of productive habitat, uh, would dissipate the wave energy, and then you would see natural um, marsh grasses behind those. And again, also the marsh grass can dissipate and dampen the wave energy too before it makes its way up to the property. So it's kind of two lines of defense. Mm-hmm. So one defending you know, the oyster defending the marsh, and the marsh in turn defending the, the coast itself. Correct. Yeah, and during storm events, um, you'll see the water levels rise and storm surge makes its way onto coastal property, but the energy is really well dissipated. And the only thing you may have to do after a storm event is maybe replant some marsh grass, uh, whereas with bulk Bike week, baby. It is bike week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. that's bike week in Yeah. On the outbacks. But whereas following storm events where the bulkhead is damaged, then your protection is entirely reduced until you get it repaired. Uh, with the living shorelines, you'll see growth come in behind it, you know, relatively a short period of time and kind of reestablish itself naturally. Okay. So there may be some upfront cost um, from the homeowner to construct this living shoreline, but then we see afterwards it kind of maintains itself. You might have to do some plantings in the first few years, but once it gets yeah. established, it really works effectively. I saw a video on your YouTube page mm-hmm. about a gentleman who did that to his house. Uh, it started with his project, then you know, three other houses started doing it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and he mentioned, you know, after Florence, it actually held up, which is the ultimate goal. Yeah, there had been, I think, starting in Irene, um, I'll get you the name of the research. Dr. Rachel Gitman had uh, done some work and evaluating the difference in performance between bulkheads and living shorelines. And she saw that the living shorelines uh, worked more effectively and the homeowners didn't have to come in and, and do these costly repairs afterwards. Wow. Um, one of the hurdles you know, for this past decade or so were even though uh, research projects were identifying that living shorelines were a more effective way to, re- to reduce coastal erosion can actually um, spur and advance accretion of sediment over time as the kind of the, the sediment falls out of the, the wave when it breaks over these living shorelines and you know create a, more marsh and advance the marsh over time. Uh, there had been kind of some hurdles as far as the permitting process goes uh, because somebody could get a, a bulkhead permitted literally in weeks, uh, sometimes even days. Oh yeah. Whereas if I wanted to construct a living shoreline it could take months or even up to really a year. Um, so one of the big pieces of news that just came out of the Coastal Resources Commission meeting was that they finally adopted a general permit for the construction of marsh sills uh, in North Carolina, which will expedite the, the permitting time that a homeowner uh, would have to go through. Nice. Mm-hmm. So they're really just looking for more use cases. It was There's a lot of variation in the, the, the design and kind of the engineering behind um, the use of these living shorelines. They don't work everywhere. It really depends on kind of the wave energy, the fetch, or the distance that wind can travel over a water body, um, the depth, looking at the surroundings, um, you know, the type of tidal flow. So that there's a lot of variation in kind of the design that would come where pretty much bulkhead was a standard design for the most part. Yeah, you can do yeah. that, that anywhere. So it does take a little more finesse and yeah. kind of uh, evaluation of what would work where. But... Um, in general, now we're looking at the construction of a marsh sill as being a, an approved um, 
standard for erosion control. Nice. The Division of Coastal Management is looking in that capacity. Nice. And I think that will continue to advance as more and more projects are installed throughout yeah. the state. Absolutely. And uh, hopefully the, the bureaucratic red tape will kind of... Look at this as, yeah, more of an effective and adopted measure. So for that, for you know, an example like that, actual property owners reach out to you or do you... They could, yeah. Um, our office manager, Aaron Fleckenstein, would be happy to provide any consultation, mm -hmm. and they can contact our office. The Federation has three offices in the state of North Carolina. Yeah. I work in the Northeast Regional Office, and we're located in Wanchis in the Industrial uh, Seafood Park. Our headquarters and central office are located in Newport, which is just outside of the Moorhead City, uh, Beaufort area. And then our uh, southeast office is located in Wrightsville Beach, yeah. right around the loop. Yeah, I live right by there, so. Cool. Yeah, yeah. stop in any time. Yeah, I did. Mm -hmm. I did. Yeah, uh, they do like a lot of, uh, you know, I'm sure you guys did too, a lot mm -hmm. of uh, volunteer uh, opportunities. So yeah. Once summer gets kicked off, there's a lot more things to do. Yeah, right now, uh, kind of all three offices are starting to roll with more volunteer projects, uh, litter cleanups, or marsh grass plantings, construction of living shorelines. Nice. All starts to take place now through the fall. Nice. Yeah. Awesome, man. I appreciate it. This is great. Um, I learned a whole lot. Um, and yeah, you know, it's good to know that there are people who, you know, we say things drop out of the news, mm -hmm. like, you know, whether it's drilling or what have you. But it's good to know that there are actually people in organizations that stick with it and make sure it's in the public, you know, front and center in the public eye, uh, because it, it could have repercussions for all of us. Certainly, yeah. And one thing we've learned with regards to offshore drilling. Um, is that it's a forever decision once these lease sales are, are offered. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the industry has the ability to maintain those leases for you know, perpetuity. Yeah. Here. So we've seen some or heard some comments about even with respect to the seismic survey and well, we just want to see what's out there. And that's um, kind of the introductory or opening the crack in the door open. So yeah. we're working on that front as well to oppose um, a seismic survey along the Atlantic right? coast. Yep. Well, cool, man. We'll mm -hmm. keep fighting the good fight. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, of course, man. Absolutely. Appreciate it. And we're a membership-based organization, and you know we have a lot of members along the coast, but in the state and other states as well. So if you'd like more information, you can visit nccoast.org. Nice. Mm -hmm. Perfect, Mike. I appreciate it, man. Take it easy. Thanks, Brian. You too. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for joining. If you liked that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog, don'tforgetyourboots.com, where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time. Take care.